five, four, three, two, one. This is George Lucas. I was the executive producer of The Empire Strikes Back and developed the story for this part of the saga. I'm the director of Empire Strikes Back, Irvin Kirshner. I'm very happy to have this chance to talk to you all. And I'm Dennis Muran, visual tech supervisor at ILM. Empire was certainly my favorite film. And by far the most difficult one to work on. I'm Ben Burt. I was the sound designer and supervising sound editor and I'm Carrie Fisher, one of the actors in The Empire Strikes Back. This was the first time I was able to put the number of the episode on the film and the actual title where it belonged. When we did A New Hope, the studio wouldn't let me put that on there because they felt it was too confusing for the public. This is the second chapter, and it's the middle of the first trilogy. Therefore, it actually has a lot of uh, challenges that the first chapter and the third chapter don't have, which is there's no beginning and no end. When George asked me to do The Empire Strikes Back, I at first said no. The idea of following Star Wars seemed kind of forbidding. How do you make a picture that's better than Star Wars? George said that this would be my picture. He would stay in California with the special effects. And so I finally said yes and went up to the ranch and started meeting all the people. And by the time I was finished, which was about two and a half or more years later, I realized I just had one of the great experiences of my life. You guess at everything. You guess that the script will be good, that the actors you chose will be right. You guess that you'll have enough money to finish the picture. And after every scene, you guess that this is the scene that will work. It's a hell of a way to uh, spend millions of dollars. Suddenly, I found myself in the snow on a glacier in Norway. Had lots of blizzards, it was very, very cold. Uh, it was very challenging on lots of levels. This was also when we tried to move into the land of stop motion animation. We'd done a little bit of it in the first film. And in this film, I was able to take it to being a principal character with the Tauntauns. This shot here was one of the hardest ones, I think, for me in the whole show figuring out how to do that. But it opened the door sort of for creatively trying to figure out how to accommodate George with his ideas about how to do things. As we started the picture, what was uppermost in my mind was not the special effects. Of course, everything froze up there. The tauntaun wouldn't move. The breath that was supposed to come from his nostrils froze up, didn't work. George had told me, he says, don't expect things to work. And that was very good advice. Mark at the end of New Hope had been in a car accident and I knew that uh, Mark was going to look a little bit different than he did in the first film, but my feeling was that there's some time has passed. They've been in the rebellion, they've been fighting. 
that sort of thing, so the change was justifiable. As the story turned out, there's a scene in the beginning of the film when Mark gets beat up by the monster, which helps even more. But that really wasn't the main emphasis of why we wrote the monster in the beginning. It was just we needed something to kind of keep the film suspenseful at the beginning while the Empire's finding them. And here was a shot of the Tauntaun coming into the hangar and somebody had to run with a cutout of a Tauntaun from the hangar door through the hangar that we would be putting the Tauntaun in so we would see the speed and see who would not get in front of the Tauntaun so they could do the special effects. Joey! Kirsch wanted to take the film in a slightly more serious tone than what I had done on the first film, but without taking it completely out of the Saturday matinee, you know, fun kind of film that the first film had been. Uh, he just wanted to get a little deeper into the characters and make the jokes a little less flippant, which I think we managed to do without making it less fun than the first one. But my main concern was how to characterize these people that you already had met in Star Wars. That was the tough one. I wanted humor. I wanted emotion. I wanted the people to be interesting. And here we were in the ice tunnels, and the love affair was going on. A death march not an easy thing to live with. You're a good fighter, Solo. I hate to lose you. Thank you, General. How do you get humor into these scenes and yet have that serious quality? You had to believe that these people were alive, living in this improbable place, and really feeling what we feel today. They were feeling love, rejection, abandonment. They were feeling all the things that we all, I hope, we all feel in our lifetime. Larry Kasdan, who had rewritten the script entirely, understood this and wrote some very good scenes, which still needed interpretation, let's say. And the interpretation is what bugged me, what kept me awake nights. No, that's not it. Come on. I think Kirsch was able to bring in a lot more character with the droids and Chewbacca make them integral characters and not allow them to get pushed aside. The first film centered on the droids, so it was very easy on this film to have the droids disappear. And one of the challenges was to keep them sort of front and center, even though the story isn't told from their point of view like it was in the first film. But it's supposed to be freezing. I'll begin to dry out all their clothes. I remember for C-3PO, of course, we have the motor sounds of 3PO walking and moving about. We actually went out and bought just a door from an old Cadillac, El Dorado, which had the motors in the door which operate the window up and down, and it was that window motor that we used for 3PO walking. C-3PO, I realized, was going to be comic relief. He was my Shakespearean character. And I did crazy things, like putting his hand over C-3PO's mouth, well, that wouldn't stop a microphone <laughs> but, or a speaker, but it appeared to work. It had that element of humor that I was looking for constantly. Is in considerable danger. Ah! Ah! 
Well, Star Wars isn't sci-fi at all. It's uh, space opera, which is a subgenre. I mean, it's sort of halfway between science fiction and fantasy. The motif I used to tell these stories was the Saturday matinee serial, which is a, a particular genre that was very popular in the 30s and 40s. I wanted to look just like that, and those were, at least the Flash Gordon, Buck Rogers kind of things, were space operas. Some people like to call them comic book stories, but they aren't comic book in the superhero genre. They're comic book in the very early part of the century when adventure serials first started. We had a number of problems with shooting the snow monster. We could never quite get the suit to work right, and so we kind of made it so it was very vague, and it wasn't until later that we were able to create a, a good monster suit that was more realistic looking and bring the creature in here a little bit more to the forefront so that it was more threatening and more interesting. And here was the first instance of the power that Mark had, the power of a Jedi, which gradually develops through the film. He had to get out of a difficult situation and here was his lightsaber and he willfully makes a jump into his hands and of course, lops the arm off of the ice creature, which kind of worried me because I think kids would, would be very upset by this. But like all fairy tales, and of course this is a fairy tale, there should be frightening things. I used to do these retreats where one of the things they taught was that the unconscious mind doesn't know the difference between dreams and films. And what you'll respond to in a film emotionally is the same thing. It will release a kind of emotional content that, you know, will, will be primal for you, will have something to do with your childhood, blah, blah, blah. And he bore that out. He showed us films. Well, one of the films, some of the films he couldn't show when I was there was Star Wars. But he showed all these other films, Quest for Fire, and a lot of Stephen films and so on. It was sort of true that it was space fantasy. I suppose a lot of it was responded to because it was like fairy tales for a modern society. And, and because you're watching characters act out, heroes act out something that you're very happy to watch and identify with. Poor little R2-D2, all alone, wondering where his friend is which kind of proves that he has emotion, which is what I wanted. I wanted everyone to reveal their emotional side, robots included. And the first day of shooting was about 20 degrees below zero, and we had to start shooting with Mark. We started the day by putting the camera in the doorway of the hotel after clearing away a mountain of snow, and he went out in the snow and did some runs, and he fell in the snow and crawled and saw Obi. But it was all seconds, running out in the snow and running back, and we were all nicely ensconced and back of the doorway where the camera was shooting out. But snow is snow, and you can't tell the difference. The Tauntaun voice was concocted from a recording of an Asian sea otter named Moda. It's a very small little mammal, probably less than a foot long, but with a very loud and shrill voice. And the small sea otter could almost speak with a wah-wah kind of voice, which we pitched down a bit and used it for the 
sound of voice of the Tauntaun. ...pick up any signals, although he does admit that his own range is far too weak to abandon all hope. Your Highness, there's nothing more we could do tonight. The shield doors must be closed. Close the doors. Closing yes. the door, I wanted to make into an event because it was closing off their closeness. Now, here is another case of emotion where the two robots really care about what's happening out there in the snow. And the howl of Chewbacca, to me, was very important. That was an emotional outburst. I think one of Kirsch's other challenges was to create a little bit more emotion in Chewbacca. I think that was accomplished in a great way with his sadness over Han Solo being missing. Don't worry about Master Luke. I'm sure he'll be all right. He's quite clever, you know, for a human being. After the film was finished, I shot Alec Guinness, and that was a joy. I noticed that between takes, Alec Guinness would sit in his chair and study a little book that he had. And so I uh, asked him at one point to change a reading. And he says, could you give me a few moments, please? And he sat in the chair, opened up this little book, and I wonder, what's he looking in his book for? And I looked over his shoulder. He had every line printed out by hand with little markings over the words where he wanted to change inflection or emphasis. So we have some Tauntaun shots here also when the Tauntaun is running along in this blizzardy snowstorm. What you're really seeing is you're looking through a piece of glass on the Tauntaun with some spray on it to look sort of snowy. And the background's all just white and then the feeling of snow is all done just with lighting on a white background. And the Tauntaun is animated uh, sort of one frame at a time. Some of the effect of the blowing snow was created in the soundtrack by actually using a recording of surf along the ocean side. And if you laid down a track of the surf and then occasionally swelled it up and down as if there were gusts of wind, you got a sound which read as swirling snow. This is another <laughs> moment when he cuts open the tauntaun in order to put his friend inside to keep him warm. And it's an old trick that Indians did and Eskimos of putting themselves into the body of a beast to stay warm through the coldest part of a night. Of course, the smell was pretty bad, and that's how the line came up of Harrison's. Uh, I thought they smelled bad on the outside. Uh. And here they were out in a real snowstorm on top of Norway. I'll say one thing for the actors in this film, they all look very cold because they really were very cold. One of the great difficulties of doing the special effects on this particular snow planet is we were doing white objects on a white background, which had really never been done before in terms of matting. And so it was very hard to hide the matte lines. Now these backgrounds here that ILM was given were shot in Norway when we had to put our miniature snow speeders in them. This was really hard stuff at the time we were doing it. You know, blue screen photography has never been very easy in the compositing putting the scenes together and getting rid of the blue lines around things was always incredibly difficult to do. Now in the digital world, of course, it's much, much simpler and the work is much, much better. Commander Skywalker, do you copy? This is Rogue Two. Any of these scenes where you see the speeders flying along are programmed with motion control cameras moving very, very slowly past the models. 
and we might take three or four hours to program the motions of one speeder and then maybe five minutes shooting at slow speed to shoot it against the blue background. And from then on, it would be a few days and weeks of work to get all the mats working and get them combined with the background. And then we would have to put shadows in underneath them that were sometimes animated and sometimes actually a separate exposure of the real model on a white card that would then be placed optically underneath the one to look like it's casting a shadow actually on the background that was shot in Norway. In this scene where Mark is in the tank, he almost got killed. They had a light right over the tank, which was open on top with the water bubbling. And just before he went into it, the thing cracked and these huge pieces of glass came tearing down into the water, very heavy. And if he had been in the tank a few minutes later, I don't know if he would have gotten out of it. Well, Your Worship, looks like you managed to keep me around for a little while longer. We were very conscious of the fact that we didn't want to drag this thing down into a dark morass that was significantly tonally different than the other film. But we wanted to be more sophisticated and deal with the fact that the film is going in a darker direction. So the kind of goofy giddiness of the first film was toned down dramatically on this film, and it was replaced with a kind of a slightly more mature humor. Alone in the South Passage, she expressed her true feelings for me. What? And here is a scene where I had a chance for emotion and humor and characterization. The actors had to make it believable. This was a fairy tale, but the best kind of fairy tale is one where you believe the people. And of course, when she kisses Mark, oh, jealousy rears its little head. C-3PO understands it, and so does Chewbacca. And it sets up scenes for later, including the third film. Excuse us, please. Princess, we have a visitor. The actors that I chose in England were British. They weren't just a couple of Americans. And what I wanted to do was make all the bad guys British and all the good guys American. But sometimes I didn't have the actors, so I had to use British actors and put American voices on them. It could be an imperial code. But a lot of the picture was dubbed because there was so much noise on the set with the special effects, with the chains and the steam and all. And Bert, of course, took care of all that. We're always doing new explosions, and when the probot blows up, I remember one of the principal elements in that explosion is a big sheet of plywood, which we snapped out in back of the building in the parking lot and added it in on top of the explosion itself. We dubbed it the wood crack attack explosion. This is the kind of scene that I like to do with the people. I like to fill up the frame with the faces. There's nothing more interesting than the landscape of the human face. Afraid there's not much left. What was it? Droid of some kind. I didn't hit it that hard. Must have had a self-destruct. An Imperial probe droid. It's a good bet the Empire knows we're here. We better start the evacuation. Uh, here's the scene when you suddenly realize that these massive Star Destroyers are not so massive after all. This was quite a design problem that 
Joe Johnson, myself, and a lot of people worked out to try to make these huge destroyers look small. And we did it with the shadow, which really helped to give you a sense that there's something much, much bigger out there, which of course is Darth Vader's ship. So the design-wise, these were interesting, and here's the new Darth Vader ship that we made just for this film. first heard the title, The Empire Strikes Back, I think George mentioned it to me some months prior to the filming taking place, and I wasn't so sure he was serious about the title. For some reason, it seemed such an extreme pulp-sounding title to me, like an old serial chapter. Of course, I've since realized that, well, that's what we were making. We were making big versions of the old serial chapters which had you know titles like human targets or fate takes the wheel or you know the crimson ghost strikes out or something so it was fitting that this title was what it is i had the sequel rights that i gotten almost by accident on the first film because i got them because i wanted to make sure i could finish these other movies thinking that i was gonna have to struggle to get them made and i didn't want them to have the right to say no but as it turned out, they became extremely popular, so the problem became just the opposite, which is they wanted to take it over and make it their way, and I wanted to make it my way. So the struggle became one of who was going to control the picture as much as anything else. Evacuation control will give clearance for immediate launch. Right, sir. And here's another chance for humor. About all I had to work with on the ship was a little welding torch. <laughs> That's the only thing that would give me something dramatic. We try to keep exposition down to a minimum because you didn't need much. The story is quite simple. The people aren't, but the story is simple. Not simple-minded, but not so complicated that you need a lot of explanation. That gives the director a chance to work on the characters, to work on little moments of improvisation, staging instead of having to have these long-winded speeches about exposition. Be careful. We were very concerned because it was a darker story. And I was very concerned, especially at the end of the story, where the hero loses and has this stunning revelation about his father and also has his hand cut off. It's pretty down ending and not at all like the ending for the first film but it is the second chapter and that's the way it was I mean that's I had to do that in order to get to the third chapter in a lot of ways I think it hangs together better uh, we did have the advantage of having been through it once and this is our second attempt at refining how everything goes together and the first film was extremely experimental in terms of just how we went about making the movie in terms of special effects and production values and and I was really under a lot of stress from the studio and everybody and had very, very little money to work with. I had about half the budget that this was. Ultimately, it was even less than that. He is stupid. Well, the interesting thing, too, about shooting this movie was you now had this weird, never-before luxury of shooting a film you knew was going to be a hit movie. So now we're shooting this film, and it's sort of extra fun because you're making a film that has become this phenomenon, and it was a phenomenon then. And so it was, I guess, a little bit more kicked up because it was this kind of goofy, you know, everybody wanted to know what was going to happen, and it had become this type of film that had never been done before. 
This was the longest speech on the planet Earth. I had no idea what I was talking about. Several ion cannons will fire blasts at the shield of the blah. And then I was in the gobbledygook of George's typewriter. So I am desperately hoping that I can remember this speech. I had no clue as to what I was talking about. Understood? Yeah. Good luck. Okay, everybody to your stations. Let's go. And here now is the most important thing about this climactic scene. The preparation for a battle is what makes the battle work. The battle itself, you expect. You expect the action. You expect to see a lot of violence. But the preparation gives you the buildup, the emotion to be interested in it and to care about what happens. And of course, the preparation is a drumbeat that continues until the actual violence. <laughs> I love the way that ship that gets away it looks like it's a leftover from 1930. But that's these poor people. They don't have all the money of this empire that's after them. This is supposed to remind you of all the war films you've seen where the pilots get into their planes and they're gung-ho because they're young and they know they're going to win. And so this is very much war film stuff so that it's not something special that takes place in the future. You recognize it. It has a familiar feel. The approaching walkers was one of the most satisfying sequences to work out with sound because it involved the unseen menace of these giant walking machines as they first appear on the horizon. And the thumping of the legs coming was made up of several elements. The first was an artillery explosion we had recorded in Oklahoma, a very distant thump of the explosion. That was mixed with the rhythmic sound of a metal shearing machine. But the walker itself also needed a slightly squeaky leg sound, and I found that going out to get the newspaper in front of my house one morning, and I opened the lid on the dumpster that had been left by the refuge collecting company, and that squeaky dumpster lid made such a good sound that I recorded that, and that became the other element of the walkers. The walkers, if anything, were inspired by the original novel of War of the Worlds, where the Martians walked on, like giant spiders, they walked on legs. I was trying to come up with a way of making this battle different and unusual without putting tanks and normal military stuff in there, and came up with the idea of giant walking machines. They're tall because I wanted the speeders to be able to fly under them, you know, to make a more dynamic kind of battle out of it. And again, I was struggling with the fact that in the first film I had this big space battle at the end of the movie, but in this film there wasn't anything like that. Rogue group, use your harpoons and tow cables. Go for the legs. It might be our only chance. The approach that I took for the walking machines on this was to do them stop motion animation. There was some talk about doing them motorized, but I think we'd still be working on that if we'd done it. Actually, tried to make real walking machines. Everyone sort of got together and made the models, the walking machines, probably about two feet high, and the legs about two inches wide each one, so that just big enough for a hand to sort of grab it and be able to move it one frame at a time from one position to the next. The backgrounds are massive, massive 
beautiful paintings that were done by Mike Pingrazio, sometimes 15, 20 feet wide. And the aerial shots, when you're looking down on the walking machines, is a large set, probably about 30 feet square, with trap doors in it, so the animators could, between frames, pop up through the trap doors. Yes, Lord Vader, I've reached the main power generators. The shield will be down in moments. You notice when he pulls down this periscope, it's very much the same as on a submarine. And this is one of the joys of this film, that there's a familiarity to everything. I mean, here he is wearing an outfit that could very much be a pilot today. The snow that's on the ground for the stop ocean shots is made up of these little micro balloons, little tiny, tiny particles that I think were used for filling in paint, thickening it or something like that. And then sometimes we use flour and then with paintbrushes very carefully manipulated around so that it looked like it was snow banks. But never, of course, wanting to touch it between each frame accidentally even. If someone put their elbow there animating it, then you, suddenly the snow would jump to a different position. It would look really fake This is a wonderful moment when it falls, and they're so happy for a moment. The explosions are very necessary. <laughs> I think there's a certain satisfaction in seeing things blown up, especially bad things. And the kids do respond to it. I see it, Wedge. Good work. I don't think we can protect two transports at a time. It's risky, but we can't hold out much longer. We have no choice. Launch patrol. Evacuate remaining ground. This is again Chewbacca with Han Solo. Always having a fight, always having problems, but they love each other. And here he is saying goodbye to R2D to take care of yourself. <laughs> which anybody would say today with a friend that's going off to do battle. So the snow battle involved the production of a lot of new effects, which is the sound of the lasers firing from the walkers was actually a little snippet of a sound that a, an old biplane motor makes when you crank it up to a high RPM rate and then you kick in the motor mechanically and that sound of it kicking in, a squeaking sound, is what's used for the walker lasers. The sound of the speeders steady in flight was derived from a recording which was of the LA freeway recorded through a vacuum cleaner pipe. I put a microphone inside it and then pointed it at the distant freeway and it was that sort of phasey sound that I got that was used as the sound of the speeders steady. Here's our hero in trouble, in bad trouble, but we gotta follow him because he's the one that leads us into battle and out of battle. Landing was done right there. We brought that little machine up on the snow. Of course, the legs were put in later in the studio. This was quite a difficult shot when the walker steps on the snow speeder, because we had real footage of Mark jumping out of the snow speeder and we had to actually have the speeder crushed in the background. So that inquired quite a bit of, I remember at the time, quite a bit of hand rotoscoping being done on that shot to get that to work. Now we're inside the ice chamber and of course all these effects are actual stage effects. We had to have the smoke, we had to have the things falling, when the building shook, that was the camera shaking, and the people went with it. 
rather primitively little uh, sparks on what you need to show that there's fire and danger. And so wherever possible, use fire and sparks. Sparks, lots of sparks. And get your transports. Oh, wait for me. So this is an exciting sequence coming up when Luke gets pulled up. And any of these scenes that we have around now in the sequence are pretty neat when you have people running underneath the big walker machines. It's sort of like working on an old King Kong movie. This is a little stop-motion Luke being pulled up on an animated cable, little actually drawn animated cable, not a miniature one. This was built, actually, in the studio, this piece. And he was hanging there underneath this giant thing, and he fell into the real snow. Now we had a larger walker here for the scenes when the pyrotechnics go off in, and this is again our sort of five-foot walker he made just for explosions. And sort of a cute idea of the way it collapses here, falling over on its side. One time we talked about it, its rear legs collapsing and would sort of just sit down, but that I think was deemed a little too comic, but could have been cute. There's nothing like big giant creatures attacking people. It's really fun to look at, still is today. One seven one fortunate thing about Star Wars is I've always been able to pretty much tell the story without any interference. Even the first one in the studio, Alan Ladd Jr. was very cooperative in allowing me to do what I wanted. But since the first film, there had been a sort of continuing change of management through the rest of the movies. You know, you don't always have a guarantee just because you have a good relationship with the studio at one point that two or three years later you'll still have that relationship. Fortunately, I was able to be immune from that kind of corporate turnover. Because this film was not a traditional sequel, it was just a continuation of a story, and because it didn't have a beginning and an end, it had a unique structure where a lot of the big action sequences are early on in the movie, and it ends on a personal note. These are things I'm not sure a studio would have gone along with if they had their say about what was going to happen and what was not going to happen. And they're running away. So lots of explosions, lots of sparks. <laughs> you need sparks. And they just about make it with poor C-3PO, trying to keep up with them, but it's pretty hard in that suit. Poor C-3PO, always left behind. This becomes a, a running gag, and you need running gags to create humor. I didn't have to put pressure on Kirsch. I think there was a lot of pressure on him to say, I want this to be the best movie it could possibly be. You know, I don't want to drop the ball on the franchise. I don't want to not make this better than the first film. And here is Han Solo, always in trouble with his ship. Now, you notice when he banged the ship that all the lights went on. Well, that's one of the oldest gags in the world. You know, here's a high-tech thing that goes faster than the speed of light, and he gives a hit on the wall and all the lights go on the, the current <laughs> I don't know how many people catch it but I love it <laughs> it's these are the moments that I was trying for see someday you're going to be wrong and I just want to see it punch it the other thing that you guess at is the timing 
within the scene, the rhythm of the actors, the rhythm of the speech, the rhythm of the movement, the rhythm of the staging, this is locked in time. And this is the biggest guess of all. This shot here is the only shot that was done outside in London in the whole film after Norway. Norway was exterior and the rest of it is all on the set except for that one thing. One of the things we were trying to do on Empire was come up with new dynamics for the spaceships and the snow speeders or ever to, to fly, different ways of photographing them also. We tried a shot where we had the next wing way over on the right-hand side of the frame and bank and exit way over on the left-hand side of the frame without the camera really doing much of a camera pan. And that was done to give a more dynamic look to it. We were trying all the time to come up with different ways to make these, the shot right here, different ways to make the spaceships look. To give the scale to the start of the story, we put a lot of the ties and the Millennium Falcon right in front of it, so you could really see how big that destroyer was behind it. Because there were essentially were sort of three scales. There were the ties and the Falcon that you're kind of used to, the bigger Star Destroyer, and then you had on top of that the massive, massive Darth Vader ship. Check the deflector shield. This was sort of fun here, the sequence where we're trying to show these ships so massive just barely being able to maneuver and turn around. And conceptually, it was difficult figuring out how to visualize this, but we came up with some neat angles looking up at it so you could get a sense of the Falcon falling down with the ties and up above seeing the near misses that were going on. Prepare to make the jump to light speed. But They're getting close. Harrison, in these scenes, when they go into the meteor field, was talking very fast. When we went to dub him, Back in Hollywood later, uh, he asked me to go check the projector. He said, you know, I can't talk that fast. He says, the projector's running slow. Well, of course, the projector was running at the right speed. And I said, you were speaking that fast because the adrenaline was high. You were doing the scene. I can't do it, he said. And so we kept running the ADR over and over, and finally he got into it. And of course, he could talk that fast, and he did it. And bang, the thing falls on his head. And we don't see it, but we know it. Han, get up here. One of the things I wanted to do was to begin to progress the love story, but I couldn't really resolve it until the third film. It's the progression of a love story that never goes anywhere in this particular movie. In the end, he confesses his love for her and that sort of thing, but it isn't when we get to the next movie that they're madly in love or it sort of resolves itself in any way. It's just a, it's a very subtle movement of the emotional relationship they have. And that's always been a difficult thing in this particular story because the, the love story is a very thin factor in all of these. Subtle in the first film, move along on a very thin note on the second film, and a very slight resolution in the third film. Mostly Saturday Night Night Serials had no love story at all. They, the love story was, you know, a hero meets heroine and they fall in love. I mean, there's no dialogue or anything. It's just, it's sort of a given. Oh, you're the hero? Yeah, I'm the heroine. Oh, okay, let's kiss. <laughs> you know, there, there was no real depth to it at all. And uh, they, not much time was ever spent on the love story aspects of it. We stay out here much longer. You can argue with that. Oh, I'm going in closer to one of the big ones. Closer? Closer.
we managed to elaborate this from the original ideas and have this big drop in here where you go down into a canyon. Originally, this was just flying over the surface, but I thought it would be neat to go into a crater, then go into a narrower part of it, and then on your side like this to be able to get out. And this has been copied in a lot of films since, that same idea, but it was just a way to make the sequence more interesting and then to have a better reveal for this right here. So you have your own little moment, you think you're safe, and then you have a reveal for the escape hole that you can hide in. I think this is very beautiful, this move here. The major problem that I did have on this film was that this is the second part of a trilogy. And the second part of a trilogy, it's a quieter film, like the second part of a symphony or the second act of a play. It's more characterization and less action. And the problems are explored. It has to be an advertisement for the third one. It has to lead to it seamlessly, effortlessly. And I always had that in mind. The thing about Dagobah was that in the original story that came out of New Hope, at this point in the story, Obi-Wan Kenobi counseled Luke on how to become a Jedi and the nature of the Force and to really learn about the Force. But because of the situation in New Hope, I decided that there wasn't very much for Obi-Wan Kenobi to do in the last part of the picture, and I felt it would be more dramatic to kill him off, and that I would then figure out what to do in the next movie when I got there. So here I was in the next movie, in this section, the middle part of the section, where Luke learns to use the Force from a Jedi, who was supposed to be Obi-Wan, and I'd killed him off, so I couldn't do that anymore. So I invented this new Jedi, Yoda. And in order to sustain what I figured was going to be a lot of long, talky scenes, I wanted to make him a rather unique alien character. So he was fun to watch. And because he was supposedly one of the greatest Jedi of all time, I wanted to make him very small and very un-Jedi looking so that it would be a real surprise when you discovered that this funny little frog-like creature on the side of the road, so to speak, turns out to be this great Jedi Master. But it really came out of the problem I had in killing off Obi-Wan Kenobi in the first movie. Not technically killing him off, but having him join the Force at will. <laughs> the issue of consciously joining the Force, which is a theme that runs through these films, and being able to retain your personality and your individuality once you've gone over to the other side is part of the story that gets explained in the first three films. And here it becomes kind of a mystery because it's never really explained how and why that happens. Dagobah is a place where there's a great opportunity for the sound designer because you can create an unseen world that's off camera. You can give it a vastness, which is not really there. I started out with some just recordings of birds done at a zoo, but they were in a very echoey aviary. When you slow down the recording of the echoey birds, they became spooky howls, which really had the right feel. But mixed in, the, in with that were a lot of other little animals. We had some recordings done of raccoons, done in a bathtub in order to confine them so they wouldn't run away from the microphone. 
Remember in the original production track that we get from the set that, of course, R2 doesn't beep in all these scenes, but rather you'd often hear the director, Irvin Kirshner, making beeping sounds to cue the actors, and it was kind of fun to hear that. He was imitating as best as he could sounds from the first Star Wars movie. Here's an intimate scene between the two, and he cleans off his little eyepiece. Whoop! <laughs> and out comes the mud and water. It was very important in this movie, at this point, for us to realize that Darth Vader was a human being, that he wasn't a robot, he wasn't some kind of monster, he wasn't an alien. Because in the first film, you didn't know what he was, you never saw him. After going through that with Kirsch, he came up really with this thing of having him put his helmet on, which was really nothing more than a setup for the next movie. That, to me, is the way to show Darth Vader. I could see him with his helmet, and I wonder, really, what the hell's underneath? Is it just an ordinary man, or is it pieces of a man? And that's what happens to the audience when they don't see too much. Shit. Not excuses. Yes, sir. I'm going to shut down everything but the emergency power systems. Sir, I'm almost afraid to ask, but does that include shutting me down? Here they are, inside of a wormhole. Now, you see when they're moving, I'm shouting right, left, right, and they throw themselves in the direction I'm saying. If I say right, they throw themselves to the right, and the camera, which is being held by hand, moves to the left. In the back and plug him into the hyperdrive. <laughs> so it looks like the ship is moving and they're moving and they're listening for my whoop. I said right. Now this was a chance to get her into his arms, which of course is a lovely moment. We're all waiting for something to happen between them and this is the build-up. This is the second time that they're together in a big close-up. No, she's resisting it. Oh, yes. Now, here we are on the planet, which is muddy, water, foggy always. There's no sun ever. The classic mythological motif that goes through a lot of stories through history is that the key mystical character is an animal by the side of the road that seems very insignificant, that when the hero comes past, he's kind to. Where most people pass that creature by, they ignore him or they belittle him or cast aspersions upon him. The hero is kind to him. And by being kind to him, the hero gets the magic that the character on the side of the road has. And in this case, I was playing that motif more literally than I had in the first film. It's kind of what Obi-Wan Kenobi is in the first film, as the old wizard. But here, it's much more the magical frog, so to speak. Something familiar about this place. There was a huge challenge with this. I didn't want Yoda to look like a man in a suit. So I made him two and a half feet tall, which is, would have been impossible, you know, to put anybody in. And in England, we had worked across the street from ITV, which is where Jim Henson's group was. And we knew Jim Henson, and so I asked Jim if he thought it would be possible if we could get together and create a very realistic-looking puppet and make it work. And he thought about it, and he 
thought it was an exciting idea and he thought it might work. And so he helped advise us on this and he recommended that Frank Oz be the puppeteer. He said he's really the best. Stuart Freeburn, with the help of the Hansen Group, he created the head, which by the way, he later said was self-portrait, a portrait of me, and I didn't see myself in this, but he did. But I sure could see Stuart Freeburn, the maker of Yoda. I mean, it's, it's like it's a spitting image. Between Jim Henson and myself and Frank Oz and Stuart Freeborn and Kirshner moved around to create something that seemed completely impossible when I first came up with the idea of a two-foot-high Jedi. Yoda here is a mischievous little toad, which is character. And without that character, he's just nothing. He's a puppet. Cutting the voice of R2 in this sequence with Yoda was a lot of fun because there were a few comical moments and interplay between Yoda and R2. It was really just almost a madness when you had this little impish new creature appearing and then you had a robot that beeps and boops, and having the two of them argue and fight over the stick and over the objects. He really is childlike, which is, I think, why children love him so much. <laughs> I love when he's beating on him. This is all part of the characterization. He's a curious child who won't give up something that he's found. Find your friend? Hmm? I'm not looking for a friend. I'm looking for a It was the, one of the scarier things in the movie because if he looked like Kermit, we would have been dead. And we were just terrified that he was going to be this sort of shocking new character. He didn't know how we did it. And I think when it first came out, that it was the impression. That people just couldn't figure out how we created this character. But it was struggling with this character that took me to the next level of saying, gosh, I wish I could get that character to walk because he can't walk more than a few feet. You know, because he's really a guy on a hand and moving around. And it takes a lot of work to get him to go anywhere. That was really what started me on the idea of creating digital characters that could actually move freely in a set without having to have the whole scene blocked around the puppeteer. Now we have the problem of the ship, and of course, C-3PO figures it out pretty well. I believe, sir, it says that the power coupling on the negative axis has been polarized. But Han Solo can't take advice from a robot. So he just tells him, hey, uh, check the whatever it is you're supposed to check that he just heard from C-3PO, you see, which is, again, a very old gag. And that's why it works. Now, here we have the love scene. This is the third part of the setup. You can tell she loves him. I mean, it's obvious to everybody, but no, she's going to resist him. And that's what the scene's about. And of course, what he wants is to kiss her. And a kiss in this film is almost equivalent to intercourse. Not to the children, but to the adults, <laughs> I think. Okay, Harrison, by the way, he doesn't like doing screen kissing at all, and I don't think I'd ever done it. And I think right before we shot this, he told me about he had done a screen kiss where he put oysters in his mouth so that when he kissed the person, he slipped a few oysters into the person. 
So I was looking forward to the kiss, as you can imagine, with great excitement. Certainly he had the upper hand, as it were. There aren't enough scoundrels in your life. And she resists to the end, but getting closer on it happens. Oh, what a joy. It happens. I've isolated the reverse power And there is that stupid robot coming in at the wrong moment when he could have continued having fun. I always liked the moment in this scene where an asteroid hits one of the Star Destroyers and then when we go to the briefing with Darth Vader, one of the guys gets killed. The image flickers off. The Nazis are, you know, basically the same costumes that we used in the first film. And they're designed to be very authoritarian and very military, very empire-like. You'll see as time goes on, they don't really appear in the movie about the Republic, which is the first three movies. You don't have that same kind of militaristic look because in the first three films, the Jedi are the ones who keep peace in the universe, not the military. The most critical job that any sound designer can have is the selection of the right sound at the right moment. You don't just put in every sound that you might possibly justify at a given moment in the movie. The ear couldn't sort them all out. You have to be very selective and pick just the right things and orchestrate them at just the right moment. And it's often dictated, just as it is in music, by convention and by the history that preceded it as to what you do. In Star Wars, many things in it are sort of derived from science fiction movies of the past, things that came out of the Flash Gordon serials or Forbidden Planet or movies that I loved as a kid growing up. The recordings done at Ken Strickfadden's laboratory, really, ended up being used all over the place in Empire Strikes Back and in subsequent Star Wars films. That is, the recordings I made of the old Frankenstein props made back in the 1930s, which belonged to their inventor, Ken Strickfadden. It was actually on this film that I met him. I went to his home and recorded all of those devices, and it was a tremendous array of unusual electrical sounds. Some of it was used, well, just here and there. R2-D2 wants to know what's going on inside, so he gets up on his tippy toes. <laughs> we had to do a special rig to make that happen. I said I wanted to get up on his tippy toes, so they worked all night and they made him get up on his tippy toes <laughs> and here we were shooting in this little set i mean we were all on our knees it's very small it has to be all these scenes with yoda are written around the puppet so they're staged around the puppet in the little house in places where we could actually cope with the technicalities of how you do these scenes and I wanted them to be a little bit of variety because they all take place in one part of one planet by having inside, outside, in confined spaces and not moving around too much. We were able to deal with the puppet and Kirsch did a great job with this. I mean, he had a real connection with Yoda. And one of the reasons Yoda works as well as he does in this is because Kirsch believed him so much and believed in what he was saying and, and believed in him as a character. So he didn't just slough him off and you know give up or think of him ever as a puppet. Now, Yoda, for me, was a Zen master. And the things he says, war does not make one great, and things like that, are sort of little bits of Zen. I think people react to that. Like his father. Was I any one of the more fun aspects of his character is that he starts out as this funny little creature, and then he turns into this wise old Jedi, and he does it in this scene. 
He's goofy in the beginning, and then he just turns. And you can see him go from being wacky to being very wise. For 800 years have I trained Jedi. I don't count to where I keep on who is Frank Oz trained. did a brilliant job of acting in this picture. We tried actually to get him a Academy Award nomination, and Screen Actors Guild said puppeteers aren't actors, which I thought was outrageous. A lot of acting started out as puppets and puppeteers in the old days, you know, a few thousand years ago, before the Screen Actors Guild. But it's a great, brilliant performance, and it's acting. It's the best of acting. What he was doing. Underneath the set here are about six television sets and a circle. Frank Oz and his puppeteers. And they're pulling strings that make the ears work, the eyes work, and they're watching the screens. I'm on top next to the camera with earphones so I can hear, and I'm watching it on a monitor, and I'm watching them at the same time. So I'm seeing what they're seeing down below through the camera. And it's pretty tricky shooting. Yeah. You will be. You will be. This scene in the snake's mouth worked better on the page, I think, than it finally turned out. It's a very hard concept to pull off. I mean, I think it works, but I'd always expected it would get a laugh when, you know, the ship flies out of the creature's mouth. But as it turns out, most people are astonished and slightly confused, I think. We never really got the reaction we were looking for at the end of this scene. It, it was based on a mythological motif, but as they put it together and everything, and I, as I wrote it, it, I thought it was really funny, you know, the revelation of it. We never quite got that revelation to be as humorous to the audience as it was to me when I first wrote it. <laughs> Every once in a while when you're writing, you come up with an idea and you write it down and you laugh to yourself. That's what happened to me when I wrote this scene, but it doesn't translate as I'd expected. But... Oh, I was torn with revealing what was going on before it happened, but then the film itself takes its own life, and it kind of demands that you do it in a particular way. Uh, it just wouldn't work if the, the story isn't told in a way that you could reveal that before it actually happens, because the film isn't about the snake, and actually the even the scenes in here aren't about the snake. The scenes are really about Han Solo and Leia, and they're more love scenes and getting to be intimate scenes than they are where they are and what their jeopardy is. I have a bad feeling this has to be one of the few times in any Star Wars movie that we actually paid attention to a life support system on another planet. You know, we, they never go anywhere except where there's oxygen to breathe, it seems. Nobody ever needs a space helmet. Chewing on the power cables. There's these little things that are metal-eating birds that are kind of dangerous. All they are are pieces of plastic being held up by fishing rods and swishing through the scene. Oh, that was a crew member with a Minoc on a string. No, this is all leaning acting. And I have to shout, you know, which way to go so the camera knows which way to go opposite. He says lean to the right. Oh, lean to the left. Together, 
And now, oh, lean to the right. It's like silent film. MOS, lean to the left. And now, lean together. All they're doing is throwing themselves around, according to my instruction. <laughs> Same thing in the ship. Now, the difficulty was for a C-3PO to do this, because he had limited movement. But there, there he got it. So we had a tunnel made for the wormhole sequence here, probably about two feet across. And the camera would go through, and then these teeth to sort of tell you, hey, there's something else going on. And then when the big worm creature sticks its head out of the hole, what you're actually seeing there is a big hand puppet. It's probably about six inches round that just popped it out, and we shot at high speed on a little model that was probably about six feet wide. And by putting the little spaceship in that we shot blue screen, it made the set look very, very big, even though it was really pretty tiny. Now here is Luke in training, and I thought that the best way to do the training would be for him to carry Yoda. And so we built a little one that just simply hangs on, it doesn't move, and on the close-ups, he could move. This scene is another example of what do you do when you got a puppet and you can't move around and he can't run or walk or anything. We came up with the idea of putting him in a backpack so they could be carried around. Now with digital technology, we'd probably just have him bouncing along next to him. But it did give me the chance here to have them stop and talk. Vader, is the dark side stronger? No. In a film like Star Wars, to have maybe 10 minutes of the film be lecturing, explaining the Force, how it works, the nature of the dark side. And there's a lot of sort of philosophical bent in these Dagobah scenes and a bit of nervousness on everybody's part that this would play and not put people to sleep. But I think part of it is having a unique alien character that's fascinating, having a performance by Frank Oz that is believable and sincere. It makes the, the middle of this movie relatively soft next to what people expected of the second film in Star Wars. At the time, we had no way of knowing whether it was going to work or not, because it was very unsequel-like. The risk I had was that I put the action-adventure up front to say, okay, here's the action-adventure part, but from now on, it's more going to be a personal film, you know, where people are being philosophical and worrying about emotional issues. I feel cold. He's still weak. He's got to be strengthened. And Yoda's the one to do it. That's his job. Now he has to go and explore a cave because he's in training and this is what Yoda tells him to do and there's a seriousness to Yoda's face here because he knows what's going to happen because actually he's setting it all up what's going to happen in the cave because Luke is going to have to face himself his fears and when he tells him you don't need the guns you don't need all that stuff uh-uh he's still a weak man he still needs guns and sabers. That shows that he's still weak. Anybody needs a gun is weak. Part of the going into the tree is learning about the Force, learning the fact that the Force is within you, and at the same time, you create your own bad vibes. So if you think badly about things, or you act badly, or you bring fear 
into a situation, you're going to have to defend yourself or you're going to have to suffer the consequences of that. In this particular case, he takes his sword and with him, which means he's going to have combat. If he didn't, he wouldn't. He is creating this situation in his mind because on a larger level, what caused Darth Vader to become Darth Vader is the same thing that makes Luke bring that sword in with him. And so just as later on we find out that Darth Vader is actually his father, so he is part of himself, but he has the capacity to become Darth Vader simply by using hate and fear and using weapons as opposed to using compassion and caring and kindness. But that's the big danger of the series is that he will become Darth Vader. In this film, when it first came out, nobody knew that. Nobody knew that that was even part of the plot. And even when you find out that in this particular film that he's his father, you don't quite get what is really at stake, except the metaphor that he could become his own worst enemy. It works as a sort of philosophical metaphor, but it also is a plot point. Now, when he chops the head off, we think this is really Darth Vader at this point. Now, you notice it's slightly slow motion, which makes it sort of unreal. And he looks into the helmet, and it's his own face, which means that he's facing himself. He is his own enemy. It was fun being able to introduce these bounty hunters into the series. And some of the original stories and original struggling with the screenplays, the bounty hunters played a more important role, and they pretty much got written out of A New Hope. So it was fun to be able to get them back into this film. You know, they became the critical plot point with Han Solo. And it had been set up in New Hope with the job of the hut scene, but I was never really able to continue that story. necessary, but I want them alive. Boba Fett is popular because he's mysterious and he's powerful and he's very much like the man with no name from the Sergio Leone westerns. Oh, thank goodness we're coming out of the asteroid field. Again, the ship didn't move because it was on rollers, but they couldn't move it fast enough. You see? So we did it with a camera and a little jerking of the of this set, but that didn't do much good. Uh, look at the frustration. Ah, Chewbacca's frustration is wonderful. That means that he feels things. Harrison really got into the part. He was Han Solo. He was in trouble. He acted in trouble. He looked like he was in trouble. You're going to attack them? Sir, the odds of surviving a direct assault on an Imperial star... You notice how short the cuts are. It's very necessary to keep the rhythm of this film. Now, the cuts are very short, very little dialogue, but on the staging of scenes within the cuts, I had to keep that rhythm going. So it was the same pace, the same rhythm. And that, to me, was one of the most frightening things about the whole shooting. I was guessing 
Every director guesses. Is it the right rhythm? Is the staging good? Are we getting the point across? Are we missing anything? And the cameraman is thinking to himself, gee, is the lighting right? Will the lap screw me up? I mean, there's always something. Use the force. Again, the challenge in the Dagobah scenes is to try to explain as much as I could about the force without it getting completely didactic and boring. But there are certain aspects to the force that need to define what a Jedi can do that the other characters can't do. And these scenes are really set up to do that, to say, what is the force? How does it work? What are the powers that the force has? This particular scene is one of my favorites. Ultimately, I guess it comes down to the power of positive thinking or your belief system. If you believe in something, then it will work. If you don't, it won't. And part of getting something done in your life is to believe that you can do it. A lot of the scenes, again, are very old in nature and common wisdom told in all kinds of stories. And one of them is believe in yourself and believe in what you're doing. People use to pass on this kind of information to the younger generation. Do you nothing that I say? Master, moving stones around is one thing. This is... Frank's got a lot of long dialogue scenes, you know, a lot of preaching and lecturing, and he's able to pull it off with a certain amount of panache and character that makes it very, very watchable. When they were doing these scenes, Mark could not hear what Yoda was saying. So on the rehearsals, we put an earphone on him, and he could hear Frank Oz underneath the floor talking. And we rehearsed, 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 and then we did the take where he waited and answered, answered, answered. Now here, he's using the force. Now he used it once before in the ice cave to get the saber out of the snow. But this is a big thing. He's got to pull this huge ship out of the water, the muck. Now, the ship is, what, 20, 30 feet big? It's only three and a half feet of water, so it was all hinged, and there were frogmen under the water pulling it under so it looked like the whole thing was sliding under the water. Just me by my size, do you? Hmm? Hmm. And where you should not. For my ally is the Force. And now we have the great philosopher, Yoda. You see, there's no real emotion shown, except in the body movement, the ears. The way he blinks is important. The eyes wide open or slightly shut. That's all we had to work with. But Luke is so beautifully in character throughout the film. Everywhere. It's hard to believe when you're starting into something. And it happens in a lot of movies. Whenever you make a movie, you're always looking at parts of the movie and saying, is this going to be believable? Can you pull this off? Or is the audience just going to laugh and say, this is silly? Because you really don't know. You're taking on a huge challenge. I mean, you know it has a very large chance of not working. When you leap out there, especially with something like Yoda, yeah, and I did it in the first film with centering the film around the droids, about having a a co-pilot who's a large dog. I mean, it's just everything. Are people ready for this kind of fantasy or will they just not go with it? There's just no way to know when you're working on something like this about whether it 
is going to have that necessary suspension of disbelief or whether you're not going to get that far. And you're using the medium in every way that you possibly can to make this become believable. But in the end, I had to have a little green guy who could act and could perform. It took every bit of energy, creative energy we could muster to make Yoda happen. And here it comes out of the water. And this took 10 hours. <laughs> Everything kept falling apart. The wings kept falling off. The water wasn't right. I mean, that shot was a killer. This was easy. They just pulled it across on a cable, you know. R2-D2 looking up at the thing in amazement. No expression, but you knew that he was amazed. For sound, there's always a wonderful moment where you take a scene that's in Star Wars, which is in a fantasy world that has no ambience to it. The machinery or characters don't make the right sounds. And for the first time, you put in an ambience and you put in the sound of the vehicles or the voices. And suddenly the movie is elevated to a much more successful level of drama. And those are magic moments. They're a lot of fun. This guy's had it. He's the ex-admiral. He'd just been killed by Darth Vader. And of course, the nice thing about killing somebody like this is to get rid of the body. That makes it a real killing, you see. If he had just walked away from that, it wouldn't be as good. It becomes a bit of a humorous bit, only with Piet here, who managed to survive the whole thing. At the end, and at the very end, he expects to get zapped too, but he doesn't. I have to keep reminding people that Darth Vader is evil because ultimately he becomes sympathetic, sort of, especially in the next film. And I didn't want to lose contact with his evilness. And the easiest way to do that was to kill anybody in sight. This was a really cute, because this was a little tiny model we made to go on to the back, this one right here, go back on the Star Destroyer model. This, this little falcon there is probably about an inch and a half across or two inches across. And this was a fun sequence too, sort of, you know, how they're evasive and, and, and hiding and everything. And it was pretty neat, all these graphic images we get of these triangle-shaped Star Destroyers moving around. Surrender is a perfectly acceptable alternative in extreme circumstances. The Empire may be gracious enough. Shutting off C-3PO there, I think that's a wonderful moment because it means that he's really a robot, that they have complete power over him, and yet they depend on him. This is pleasant because, for one thing, we're in agreement about turning off the robot. So I think we agree for the first time in a million years. And we talk sort of calmly to one another for the first time, I think, in the whole film. And I smile at him slightly, probably for the first time. These little intimate scenes in close-up, I particularly like. You see the little head of C-3PO sticking out there, eyes wide open, naturally, because he can't close them. Do <laughs> you trust him? No. The concepts, the motifs, 
and the themes in the first three movies of this trilogy uh, I've tr also tried to use in the episodes one, two, and three uh, in different ways so that they're kind of harking back to something you've already seen or the way I'm telling a story, it'll reverse itself, which is you'll see something that Boba Fett's father will do that you'll then end up seeing Boba Fett do here in this junk scene. So I've gotten a lot of places in the movie where you see a scene that's extremely similar in the first trilogy that's in the second trilogy. And what it does is sort of set you up for the event in the second trilogy, even though I'm doing it in the reverse. What I call sort of reprises of ideas. It's like a, a, a musical theme that keeps repeating itself over and over again in different ways. I've used that as a technique throughout all six movies. And even in between some of these movies, I will repeat things and have some, an actor sort of confront or a different character confront the same situation or have the same moral quandary and then watch how he comes through it as opposed to the way another character would. Things you will see, other places, the future, the past, old friends long gone. Now here is the training continuing. Luke has to be able to do things that he couldn't do before, but he doesn't know that. All he knows is that he has to go and save his friends. And this is what makes his character. It's pivotal. Luke doesn't have patience. He doesn't want to finish his training. And he's being succumbed by his emotional feelings for his friends rather than the practical feelings of, I've got to get this job done before I can actually save them. I can't save them, really. But he sort of takes the easy route and the arrogant route and the emotional but least practical route, which is to say, well, I'm just going to go off and do this without thinking too much. And the result is that he fails. It doesn't do well for Han Solo or himself. It's the motif that needs to be in the picture, but it's one of those things that just in terms of storytelling was very risky because, you know, basically he screws up and everything turns bad. And it's because of that decision that Luke made on the planet to say, I know I'm not ready, but I'm going to go anyway. No, I don't have a land... This is one of the hardest sequences in the film, the Cloud City sequence. These backgrounds, uh, I'm pretty sure were shot from a Learjet. And our ships were shot, again, against blue screen, emotion-controlled and put in to them. But, boy, it was really hard to get the mats to work and get the lighting to match up and everything because it was just so vivid and uh, colorful. It was a pretty tough sequence. Especially when they disappear into the clouds like that or come out of the clouds. There really wasn't much we could do in those days to make the stuff look much better than it did here. And Cloud City, conceptually, was a pretty neat idea. I came up with the idea of a cloud city as I was flying. I spent a lot of time flying in airplanes and flying above the clouds. And I thought, wouldn't it be pretty if you had a gaseous planet like Venus, where it's just a gas planet, but that all the cities just sort of float in the clouds of gas. This is special effect. This is a miniature. This is on the set where they come out. Now, I had steam constantly being shot out of the ship. It doesn't make sense in a way. Here is a super modern vehicle that can fly at the speed of light, practically, and there are little bits of steam shooting out, but it kept the thing alive. 
See? My friend. Lando Calrissian was created as a character who was a foil to Han, who represents what Han was before he met Luke and Leia in Episode 4. One is a representation of Han at the beginning of his transformation, and this is him sort of halfway through. He is sort of making the same mistakes that Han would make if Han hadn't joined the Rebellion and become a little bit more compassionate. He's the more out-for-himself kind of character who has to do what's practical to keep his life in order. And now Han is trapped in a world between those two. You know, he's not quite as compassionate and caring as Luke and Leia are, but he's moved away from where he was, which is where Lando Calrissian is now. I thought you could help me out. What have you done to my ship? Your ship? Hey, remember, you lost her to me fair and square. I had rented my house from Eric Idle in London, and they were shooting The Life of Brian. And he came home one of the nights that we were shooting, and so he brought home from there what I believe he called Tunisian table cleaner, which was a beverage. They gave it to the extras in Life of Brian to make them happy. And Harrison came over, and the Rolling Stones came over. I think we stayed up most of the night and then went to work. So when we arrived in Cloud City, we were very happy to arrive there. It's one of the few times in all the films where we're all smiling and smiling and smiling. Eric, to this day, is very proud that he has affected one of the scenes this way. C-3PO can't walk up or down steps. So you notice he's not there. He's trailing them. But when you come around here, C-3PO appears. <laughs> you have limitations because that suit was a killer for him. Yeah, I'm responsible these days. And Billy D had a lot of trouble remembering his lines, so there was a lot of sort of getting into like half of the line and line, you know. Can I start over? That sounds like an auto unit in there. Now, the set was very pretty, actually, but there was a constant somebody cleaning up the marks on the linoleum or whatever it was. This scene here is, again, stressing the fact that Luke is making a critical mistake in his life of going after to try to save his friends when he's not ready. There's a lot of being taught here about patience and about waiting for the right moment in time to do whatever you're going to do. And it ends with Obi-Wan and Yoda kind of feeling not good about Luke's mistake. And they were pinning a lot of hope on Luke. It sets up the fact that in this series, Luke could be expendable at this point, that maybe he's made his bad choice and he's going to go off and something bad is going to happen to him. And therefore, the idea that there is another possibility here, we don't need Luke to tell the story, we can get somebody else to do it, is really designed to sort of make you feel that Luke is expendable. That is why your friends are made to suffer. The problem with one of these kind of movies is like Superman or anything else, but if you've got a hero who can't be killed, then where's your drama? Well, here, what I've done is said, well, this guy can be killed. Don't worry, he's not the important one. There is another. It's a cheap trick, but it works. Only a fully trained Jedi Knight. With he was afraid to put his hand in that vent in the actual set because we had this little snake. 
I said, the snake can't bite. And, you know, it's not a meat eater. Oh, no, I, I can't. And so, you know, somebody stuck his head and took out the snake. Look, look, and put it back in. And finally, Mark went and stuck his head in and brought out the snake. But he was really frightened of touching a snake. But he did it. And that's what's wonderful. I cannot interfere. And so I had to make the scene work here with Ben, who appears, and a disappointed Yoda, and him preparing the ship. And he's being told that he shouldn't do it, which sets up tension. And we need this story tension. Don't do it. It's a larger issue. It's saving many more people if you stayed here and used your power. No, my friends, it's a very human impulse. This, of course, sets up that there's another, again, an advertisement for the next film. That boy is our last hope. No, there is another. Some things are designed for the next movie, some things that come out of things from earlier movies that nobody's ever even contemplated yet in terms of the fact that there would be three movies that came ahead of this. All the seeds have been planted in these movies in little moments, little lines, and things that hopefully when one sees all six together will resonate back and forth between all the movies and reveal things. All I can remember with sound in this scene was that there was a fountain in this room which had a dribbling water sound on the dialogue track, which made it unusable, so we had to loop it. <laughs> and, uh, although I think a couple lines sneak through. If you listen carefully, you can hear the water dripping in the background. I'll talk to Lando, see what I can find out. I mean, there are interesting, unique problems in recording the production sound for a Star Wars film. When they're in the cockpits, uh, say, of the Millennium Falcon, often it's difficult to get the actors to speak loud enough during the performance of the scene. And you had a difficult time trying to achieve a natural balance so that later, when you put all the music and all the roar of the spaceship in, they don't get drowned out. The idea of 3PO being disassembled and then trying to get himself put back together again is a motif that is carried through with Luke and also even with Han. It's a motif of the movies. In this case, it's physical. It's a physical manifestation. But in the rest of it, it's either emotional manifestation or a personality manifestation of somebody that sort of ripped themselves apart and is trying to put themselves back together again. So it's fun when you can take a, a literal character, in this case, you know, a tin woodsman or Humpty Dumpty and break them all apart and then have part of the movie be about how he gets put back together again physically, which is what Luke is trying to do, what Han is doing in terms of his morality, but more importantly is what, in the end, what Darth Vader is trying to do. Now, when Calrissian comes in, of course, he's still taken with her, but he now has a secret. And we don't know that. He doesn't show it. But he's going to take them somewhere to help them. He looks down here and he says, oh, you got a problem? No, no problem. Why? And here are all the pieces of his friend, you know? No, that's no problem. <laughs> We're a small operation. We don't fall into the uh, jurisdiction of the empire. So you're part of the mining guild. Even though the design of the sets is very modern, it's actually not that far in the future. It's sort of a contemporary house, but their costumes are really ordinary. And that makes them still human and still accessible to us. 
the mistake is when they wear these Flash Gordon outfits with silver things and, you know, suits. It ages immediately. This doesn't age. And there's Darth Vader. Of course, you can't shoot Darth Vader. Now, how did he get the gun across that huge table into his hand? Simple. I threw it across the table, and we photographed it. Quick take of the gun flying through the air, and then put a string on it, put it in the hands of Darth Vader, and pulled it out with the camera upside down. And it snapped into his hand. Cost nothing. Best kind of special effects. Luke is in the process of going into an extremely dangerous situation out of his compassion without the proper training, without the proper thought, without the proper foresight to figure out how he's going to get himself out of it. His impulses are right, but his methodology is wrong. And then on the other side, you have Lando in a situation where he's selling out his friends, he's selling out everybody in order to save his skin and to save his city, which is just the opposite. And then you've got Han Solo and everybody sort of in between those. It's the, caught in the middle of the whole mess. Now, this is the poor Yorick scene that I did from Hamlet, where he looks down at the skull of poor Yorick. That was the reason for that little moment. I don't know if anybody ever recognized it, but it gave me a lot of satisfaction. Now, when he puts the head on, he thinks he's doing a great job, you know, but he puts the head on backwards. And, of course, he's angry. And by the little movements, you can see the anger, just these little movements, which we did so simply with strings. Now, this scene I had to cut because I showed the machine in operation where there were all kinds of sort of needles and spikes and electronic things going, and everyone felt that it was too much for a film of this type. Now, here you heard his shout of pain. That had to be cut down even because the little kiddies would be very frightened by it. You may take Captain Solo to Jabba the Hutt after I have Skywalker. He's no good to me dead. He will not be permanently damaged. I also use the same thematic arc in this film as I did in the last film with Lando, which is that he, in the end, changes and becomes a more compassionate person, just like Han did, so that as they go along, they, their compassion you know, causes other people to become compassionate. He's seen the error of his ways, and he's willing to sort of join them and do what he can to save them, even at risking his city and risking his life and everything else. This is one of those examples of what I call recurring themes or, or reprises of particular themes. It's like a musical thing where you take that note, which is the Han Solo character note from the last movie, and have him, in this case, Lando Clarissian, go through exactly the same emotional arc. Well, the idea in this scene is that they're torturing Han Solo in order to cause him pain, in order to give off the vibrations in the force that allow Luke to sense that there's something wrong. It's not a matter of asking questions. It's a matter of getting him to suffer so that Luke will be attracted to the suffering and try to stop it. 
If you pretend something long enough, it comes true. They had to pretend to fight. And it was summer, and it was hot, and I'm sorry, uh, about halfway through an hour or two of this, it started to get a little tense, and we had to stop shooting and wait for everybody to relax. Yeah, so we took about a two- or three-hour hiatus from this scene. And where the bait? Yeah, well, he's on his way. The movie is filled, of course, with lots of wonderful musical moments. But as a sound designer, you also try to achieve similar moments with just sound effects or the combination of sound effects and music, which is really, you know, making up the emotional content of the soundtrack so often. And it's always particularly challenging and can be very satisfying when there's moments in which the sound effects alone get to play the role that music might normally play. The music stops playing and then you're left with the ambience of the room. Now the carbon freezing chamber is one of my most favorite interior locations in all the Star Wars films. Not only was it, you know, visually quite fascinating, but we were able to give it all kinds of character with sound the big cranes that come down to lift the carbon block, all the pipes and steam and equipment that are going on in the carbon freezing chamber, the basic ambience for that location. I do not want the Emperor's prize damaged. We will test it on Captain Solo. So here he comes to a trap. We know that Darth Vader's there. We know that Han Solo is in trouble, and this is the death march. This was about 30 feet off the ground. It was an all-black set with some lights, and it was a circle. And we could only build half the circle because there wasn't room to build it, and also too expensive to build a complete circle. So I shot everything facing one way, and did the reverse against the same set at a different time. It was unbelievably hot up here. Chewbacca, I mean, can you imagine how hot it is for him? Plus, he started to smell like unbelievable. This is a hairy suit, though. It's not his fault. It's the suit that's starting to smell. I mean, he's... Everyone, it is a steam bath where Truly. we are. Truly, this won't help me. Hey, I think Harrison and I might have been a little crabby on this one. And he tells him, "Take it easy. You got to take care of Leia." That's his last words. Thinking about her, that's what's interesting. You got to take care of her, like you took care of me, as implied. And they kiss again. I love you. I know. But you know, this is not the way it was written. It was written, I love you too. When we were shooting it, it was just about lunchtime. And I, I hated the line, I love you too, because it gives her the advantage. 
And whenever somebody says, I love you, I love you too, you're at a disadvantage. The other person said it first. So I said, let's come up with another line. We shot I love you too. And let's come up with another line. Well, I came up with lines. Harrison came up with lines. Everybody came up with lines. And we shot for a half hour on lunch penalty. And I just went crazy because they wanted their beers, which they drink in England during lunch. And I wanted, you know, to get the right line. And after a half hour, we gave up. And I said, let's do one more take. Don't think about it. Shoot. Action. And Harrison pulled back and said, I know. And I said, okay, that's it, lunch. And David Tomlin ran over to me and said, no, no, you can't do that. What do you mean? He says, get the shot completed. I said, we got it. No, what do you mean? You're going to use I know? Come on, we've been shooting this long. Keep shooting till you get what you want. I said, I've got it. It's wonderful. I know. Nobody could have thought of that. And so (laughs) nobody believed. The crew was standing there. Nobody wanted to leave because they felt that something was wrong. I know. That was it. Part of the technical issues here is that the film has to end really between the confrontation between father and son. But just as with Obi-Wan Kenobi in the last film, I needed to have fewer cast members to deal with at the very end here. Reset the chamber of a Skywalker. When Harrison was sent down to the shop to use his body for the slab, it came back where his face was sticking out his arms were to the side, and he looked, he was at rest. I said, no, 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 no. That doesn't work. He would be fighting to the end. So he went back, and they redid it. I said, he'd be trying to get out of this thing. And I put my two hands up and grimaced. And that's what he went down and did. The interesting shading on these two stories between Han and Lando are that in the first film, Han switches over primarily for his caring and friendship of Luke and Leia. Whereas Lando, it becomes more of an imperative that realizing that by ignoring his responsibility, by making a pact with the devil, he's not going to win. It's going to get worse and worse and worse for him. The more He appeases Darth Vader. The more he joins him, the more things he does, the worse his situation keeps getting. And so it's not necessarily out of his compassion for his friends, although some of that is in there. It's more about the fact that his situation keeps deteriorating. He realizes in the end that he's on a route that he can't get out of. It's his fate, so to speak. There's a certain aspect of fate that has been added into this in terms of having a compassionate lifestyle. In this case, that thematic device is used in the uh, New Hope uh, with Luke, which is his destiny is to go off and save the universe. And when he tries to not do it, I have to go home, I have to bring the crops in, I have to do this. Well, the thing of it is his surrogate parents end up getting killed. So all the reasons he's staying, everything is, you know, it keeps deteriorating to the point where he really doesn't have a choice. You know, you have a choice between sort of choosing evil and avoiding the issue, which you can't avoid. It will not be avoidable or taking the compassion route and taking the the route of helping other people and not having to face this deteriorating situation of the more you get in, the worse it gets kind of thing.
This is the beginning of real danger. Wham! That represents danger to me. When you have the teeth and a door coming down. Now here he is on the black set. It's quiet. He's alone, he thinks. It's dark. There's nobody to fight. Whoop. The lights go on. The force is with you, young And star. here is what he feared the most. Here is the real Darth Vader. You are not a Jedi yet. Kirsch, more than anything else, decided to use a more slightly abstract look to this set and use mostly steam, you know, because we were dealing here with this motif of hell in the middle of heaven, so to speak. So we wanted to make it kind of ethereal and lots of steam and smoke. So it creates a very almost abstract set and setting that is more steam than it is physical reality. In both New Hope and Empire Strikes Back, the policy had pretty much had been that we weren't using music during the laser sword fights because the swords themselves seemed to possess a degree of musical quality to them. It was always one of the most satisfying moments to go through a whole sequence of shots and a scene with just sound effects. Because, once again, the sound effects give it such a credibility that sometimes that credibility is what gives it the most emotional impact that it's not necessary to have music do it. It's, uh, the sound effects can be the music in cases like that. Think you're doing? Getting out of here. And you all alone. Had to be a mistake. You think that after what you did to Han? I also wanted Lando to fully accept his role as being converted to the compassionate side. I didn't want Han to sort of force him or to, you know, I needed that as a device really to have Lando continue to help and become, I want to save his friend because he didn't expect that he was going to get encased in carbonite and all these things that were going to happen. They still don't trust him. He looks like he really is in trouble, huh? Oh, <laughs> that's a great moment, you see, after he lets go. And that's the moment that's usually forgotten when they do a strangling scene like that. So I kept the camera going and had him really, uh, the after effects of it is important. Now they got to get away from the stormtroopers. You'll notice that when he's running, the head's moving and the arm's moving. That was all supposed to be done electronically, but it didn't work. And the prop master came up with an idea on the spot. We were desperate. And he took him 15 minutes. He hooked up a nylon cable to the back of the hand and a cable around the head that was one end of it in each hand of Chewbacca and he ran along with a fishing pole, pulling the hand up, and as Chewbacca ran, he just moved the cable that turned the head, and it was done again, strictly mechanically, didn't cost anything. At this point, Vader's plan, really, now that he knows that he's his son, is to convince him to come with him and join the dark side, and together they're going to 
overthrow the emperor, which is the thematic device that is used through the whole movies in terms of Sith, which is if you have Sith lords, there's usually no more than two because if there's three, then two of them will gang up on one of them to try to become the dominant Sith. Anakin would have been able to do it if he hadn't been debilitated, and now he's half machine and half man, so he's lost a lot of the power of the Force, and he's lost a lot of his ability to be more powerful than the Emperor. But Luke hasn't. Luke is Vader's hope. His motives at this point are purely evil. He simply wants to continue on what he was doing before, which is to get rid of the Emperor and make himself Emperor. He only sees his son as a mechanism to further that ambition. It's his mad lust for power. Every once in a while, they inadvertently hit some metal, and that's done on purpose. That's set up ahead of time. You see what these sabers can do. They just whack right through metal. This fight between the two of them is a long fight, and in order to make it interesting and to make it progress, it goes through three different sets. One in the carbon freezing chamber, one down here below the carbon freezing chamber, which allows us to get into this giant shaft that goes to the bottom of the city. So now we've got this shaft to deal with as a set. It gives us a chance to have these hanging into the abyss scenes, but it also makes the situation much more threatening and the fight more interesting because, you know, they're fighting over a, an infinite space and it just makes it more and more hopeless that Luke is going to get out of it, you know, because he's getting more and more trapped. I always hoped that the audience would understand that Darth Vader was pulling these things at him, you see. I think they do. Of course, we know his power. And then I had him hit a few times here, one after the other. Boom. Boom. And now the wind really throws those things out, you see? Huge wind machine. You most often get the proper sound by recording something that is not the actual literal device in question. You know, some of the best wind is produced by recording something else. Sometimes even just running a pencil down a piece of rough canvas and miking it closely gives you a beautiful sound of wind. And of course our hero has to keep going. The more difficult you make it for the hero, the better it is. And the nice thing about Darth Vader is he is the perfect bad guy because he's got so much power and he knows so much. It makes the hero better. That's the Hitchcockian principle. You know, on a melodrama, you have to have a terrific antagonist for the protagonist to really flourish. And Darth Vader provides that. There's no socket from a computer terminal. Again, a cliché. The bad guys can shoot straight, the good guys shoot straight. <laughs> I've done it many times in film. <laughs> Have you ever tried to get out of the way of a bullet flying at you? And yet they do it very well on film, don't they? Just open the door, you stupid lump! All these little subplots going on all the time of R2 picking up information from the city's computer that's going to help them later. 
as they try to escape. And you know, there's lots of little setups for subplots that are moving through this whole thing. It's built on bits and pieces of information. As opposed to a movie like American Graffiti, where all the stories are not completely interwoven. They kind of are separate stories that are constantly you know, cutting from one to another. This one, all the characters and all the little stories are all part of a bigger story, so they're all completely interwoven, which is much more complex in terms of trying to develop it all and make all the pieces fit together. It's a much more elaborate puzzle. But see all the squibs everywhere? That was morning. And by the very end, I think I started dreaming robots and squibs. It's a very odd sort of job to have for that long. Now this is a huge set, but not as big as it appears. It's part painting and part actual set and part miniature, all blended together. I like this shot in particular. It's a big long lens shot. That curse did stacks everything up and it makes Vader look huge and Luke look very small, very weak, and Vader very powerful. And this is where you know, Vader reveals himself in terms of what his ambitions are, which is to have him join him to help overthrow the Emperor. It turned out to be a real collaborative endeavor between Kirsch and I. Him having a lot of freedom to direct the film the way he felt it should be in terms of the subtlety of the characters and the way he shot it and tried to support him. In this particular case of Star Wars, obviously I'm as the reigning expert on Star Wars and knew who everybody was, where everybody is and what happened and was able to solve any story problems because I'm also the only one that knew where the series was going. But there were things that were held off. I mean, the issue of Luke's father, I kept pretty quiet for a long, long time. I didn't tell anybody, not even Kirsch, because I just didn't want that to get out. And even when we shot it, we didn't give the actors that. This is a scene that was never in the script, and no one saw it except just before it happened, Mark. Darth Vader had other lines. We're going to work together. Never, I'm your father. It was never said, because he didn't know. He never saw that page. He told me enough. He told me you killed him. No, I am your father. I gave him his gestures. I want you to turn. I want you to move your head. I want you to put your left arm out. I want you to put your right arm out. At these points, you see, in the script that he had, I had worked it out so it was like choreographed for his arm movements and head movements, and you'll see it. Mark reacted to it, but he never heard it. He knew it was in the script, you see. And so he reacted to it beautifully, but this was a secret right through the picture. Nobody knew it. When the picture was shown at the Odeon, Darth Vader was sitting in back of me in London. And when he saw, I am your father, he tapped me on the shoulder and said, why didn't you tell me? I would have done it differently. <laughs> Come with me. It is the only way. I 
was very concerned about this ending, especially in terms of children and whether they'd be able to manage it. You know, he cuts his hand off, which is very symbolic. And what a young boy would think about this if he had to deal with it, and there's no resolution to it. But I talked to a number of psychologists who basically said that most kids, if it's too intense for them, will simply deny that it's true, that it, deny that he is his father, thinks he's just lying to him. And most of them said cutting the hand off wouldn't be a problem because he gets a new hand at the end. But those are the kind of things you consider when you're going through a story like this, especially since you know a lot of people are going to see it. What is the potential to you know, cause damage? It's not something you have to deal with if you have one film and it has a resolution at the end. But this one doesn't get resolved until the next movie, which in, when I made it, you know, wasn't going to come out for another three years. And more than anything else, that was my biggest concern about this ending, was that it really wasn't an ending. It was the bad guys win and the good guys limp home wounded. The films are designed for young people. They're designed for everybody, but these are really designed to be emotionally healthy even though they have a lot of violence and that sort of things in them. The past has said that that isn't usually the issue for younger people. The issue is really how the violence is portrayed and the consequences of the violence and what it means in a cultural context, which is do the characters care about? Do they care about each other? Is there any respect for human life? And that's why most of the people that get shot in these movies are stormtroopers. You know, they're faceless. Most mythology is pretty gruesome. Even most fairy tales are pretty gruesome. And so I'm pretty aware that human nature was to tell these stories and make them be very powerful in terms of their consequences. But now that we have sort of can take a, a more learned look at these things, it alerted me to the situation that without the ending of the movie, without the next ending, might be difficult for some kids. It's a unique situation of telling a story in three parts where you can't see them one right after the other. In those days, it was really, you know, you were going to see one movie and then three years later, you're going to see the other movie. So if a kid saw it when he was nine, he wouldn't see the next one until he was 12. Left a lot of kids hanging. The background in these, some of these were real photographs we had and some of them were paintings of the clouds, the real sunset look. Now here's a shot, that shot right there is a little doll, a little G.I. Joe version of the character sticking up through a model that was, we just needed to get a shot of him coming up to the outside and they never had a chance to get one in England so we did it with a little tiny model. A quick shot, came out okay. And he gets rescued and off we go. When we did Darth Vader, we had to do all his dialogue over in the studio. And so I went down to Ben's place and sat down in front of a mic with the script of Darth Vader and speaking into the mic like Darth Vader would. Oh, you are my son. I am your father. I would do it that way, you see. Uh, you will do as I say. <laughs> I did all the lines this way because I had the markings of his movements, his arm movements and head movements, and I did them all, and Ben recorded this. And he did a great job doing the temporary voices, and it's not just a matter of getting the timing right, it's also getting a good performance. 
and you know the director is usually the best one to project that performance forward and, and he would do so while the editing of the film was taking place we would get a track from Kirsch that would be um, him as Darth Vader and we get a track for him on occasion of him as Yoda in both cases he would imitate the voices and you know, reasonably good and the performances were good and that was used for the timing purposes my dialogue was played to James Earl Jones, who lost his voice by the end of the day doing it, like I did. But he just followed my voice and had all the keys to the movement and the character. That was an interesting way to work. You know better than to trust a strange computer. Ouch! Pay attention to what you're doing! always one of those story challenges when you have the main character sort of realizing his true nature in the middle of an action scene where one part of it is his father who's on one ship and he's on the other ship yet they're kind of communicating with each other and they're part of the obviously the issue here is what is Luke gonna you know, where is he gonna end up this was a uh, sequence here where we tried to give the huge look to Darth Vader's Star Destroyer and you can see it here. We have the Falcon and the TIE ships and all be as tiny as they could be against one little tiny part of Vader's destroyer. And it helps make the thing look really, really massive. But what you're looking at there actually is just this, this probably about two or three inches high of Vader's Star Destroyer, a little tiny part of that model. But with these ships in front of it being small also, it makes everything look very, very big. And they're still running from the Empire. Ready for the tractor beam. Again, a little bit of humor. Come fix me. This is more important. One of the issues in these movies is that R2 is the one who sort of comes through and saves the day. I mean, it's a subtle part of the story, but in the end, he's the one that always pulls them out of the danger one way or the other. And then the payoff of this Darth Vader killing his subordinates Piet joke is this one where he comes down at the very end of the movie and you fully expect him to get killed and he doesn't. He's too upset to even bother with killing his subordinates. Yeah, because he's really, you know, we're talking about his son now. So he's conflicted. It's not just hate anymore. There's more to it than that. He's 3PO disassembled. So this is the end of Empire Strikes Back. A lot of interesting-looking spaceships in this that were put together. Uh, there's the Falcon, and we have X-Wings. We're ready for the third film, and this was nice just to sort of give a sense that there's going to be more to come in the future in these films. These were views where you look down and you see inside the ships. That's a little tiny set that was built inside of the little Falcon probably three or four inches wide, you know, a little cockpit in there. When we find Jabba the Hutt and that bounty hunter, we'll contact you. I purposely made his new hand realistic looking, whereas you'll see when the same thing happens to his father in episode two, and his hand is not realistic looking. He wears a glove over it, but it's like a, just a metal hand, which is what gets cut off in episode six. But there is, again, this recurring theme of both Luke and his father have their right hand cut off. 
I wanted very much to not have that hand that's put on him, a prosthetic hand, to have it a dead thing. I wanted it to have feeling. I had them take a needle and stick it in the palm and on the fingers to have them twitch, which said to the audience, ah, he has feeling in them. So it means he can make love, he can do things. He's a whole man again. And the search starts, which of course has to lead to the third part. And there goes the Millennium Falcon, off on a journey around the rim of a galaxy. Now you see, I've got no big climax here at the end, but it's the second movement of a symphony, the second act of a play. It has to lead to the third. So all I could have here was emotion, caring for the people. What's going to happen to them? Remembering that Han Solo is somewhere in space, locked in a carbon box. Well, finally the filming was finished, and I realized that the whole film had been a guessing game. I was never sure that the special effects would really work with what I had shot, or rather, what I had shot would work with the special effects. I was never sure whether the performances were right, whether the staging was right. I was never sure of anything by the end of the shooting, because each shot, each day is full of compromises, but you try to keep them down. You're guessing. And then I realized George Lucas had financed this picture himself. And here I was shooting a guessing game with millions and millions of dollars of his money. This put a terrific burden on me because I knew whenever I screwed up that it was costing him money. And I knew that if something didn't work, it was costing him money. But it paid off and uh, that's the way film is, you chase shadows. George had made a deal with me and he stuck to it. He stayed in California except for a few times when he flew over like to check out Yoda. And what happened, the picture was finished and it was going to be premiered in London at the Odeon and a big royal premiere. And I got a call from George saying, uh, listen, next week uh, you're going to fly over to London for the premiere. I said, oh, that's great. When are we going? What day? He said, no, not we. He said, you're going. I said, what do you mean? Aren't you going to go over? He says, no, no. It's your film. You go. If I go, we'll be sharing, you know, the, the so-called honors, he said. He said, no, no, you go alone. It's your film. And I was very, very impressed with that because... Since then, I've gotten to know George a little better, and this is true to his character. It's funny, you know, people always say that now they look comment about, you know, Empire being a favorite. Yet at the time, it was not considered that. You have to think back, you know, how sort of capricious the world of entertainment is you know, in terms of the audience response. You know, the first film came out, New Hope, and it was extremely well-received, surprised everyone. It, you know, it had all the success of something brand new for the first time. 
Then you do a sequel, The Empire Strikes Back. And people's expectations now are very high. They remember how they react to the first film. And Empire is paced differently, and it's a more darker story. And it doesn't have a complete resolution at the end. It leaves things undone. And when it came out, there was a lot of reaction of disappointment. There wasn't this uh, judgment that it was the best of the three films or anything of that sort. It was, it was a success, of course, and it was you know respected. But people spoke less of it. There was kind of you know, well, it's, it's okay, I guess, and you know, it wasn't quite what I was hoping for. It was sort of the attitude. Given time, uh, you look back at this middle act, which is The Empire Strikes Back, and it takes on a different. It's in a different context. You know, you see the good performances. You're not bothered by the lack of resolution in the story completely. It's satisfying. You know that it's part of a greater story. And you're not just measuring it against the impact the first film had. I think when they're all done and, you know, 10 years go by, maybe sort of put them all together and look at it. Maybe it'll take on some new meaning that we don't know about yet. I think it will. (laughs) 